When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to episode four of Matt D'Elia is Confused. My guest on this episode and the topic of this episode, topics of this episode are near and dear to my heart. Uh, my guest is writer and activist Sarah Shulman. And the subject of our conversation is, I mean, we talk about a lot of things, but the primary subject of our conversation is a book she wrote called Conflict is Not Abuse. Uh, I I believe she says in our talk that it was published right before Trump was elected, um, which is insane because it's more timely now than than then, and it was very timely then. Uh, it's basically about, uh, I mean, the, 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 it's about a lot of things, but the main thesis that that we kind of break down and get into of the book is is about um, negotiating and communicating instead of racing to find blame or place blame and racing to find a victim uh, anytime there's conflict. Not every bit of conflict is abuse. Not every disagreement uh, requires some authority figure to come in and settle the issue. We have power to do that ourselves and can can do it. And, 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 and that, I find that to be... Charlie, shut up. This is my dog. She's barking. Charlie, shut up. This is conflict, and I'm not going to um, employ abuse unless she does it again. See, I'm already taking it, uh, taking the advice of the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is um, something that it will come up on uh, from time to time on this show. Um, it's very much about talking to people you disagree with, and as we move forward, there will be guests who I, I mean, already I've had guests that I disagree with strongly, but I gener- generally like. Or like a lot even moving forward there will be guests that I disagree with strongly and also don't like um, obviously I'm a big fan of Sarah's so she does not fall into the latter category category I, I I'm a big fan of hers and I agree with her and yeah th- uh, this is a this is a really cool episode and I think a really important um, thing to be talking about especially right now all right I think think that's it. Let's just get into it. Yeah, here's my conversation with Sarah Shulman. Hope you guys dig it. Thanks for listening. Okay. Hello. Hey, Sarah, it's Matt. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Really good, thanks. Thanks, yeah, thanks for um, doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, sure. If you're <clears throat> ready, we can just get started, or, I mean, I think... Sure, I'm ready. And you, can, ready. He- you can hear me just fine? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, again, thank you so much, Sarah Shulman, for being a guest on Matt D'Elia is Confused. Um, Sarah, I'm a really big fan of yours, and I want to... There's a lot to get into uh, that I want to talk to you about, but I think first to to, to just lead with um, your book, Conflict is Not Abuse. Um, if you could maybe uh, just sort of, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I would love to just sort of loosely frame it for our listeners, just kind of uh, as as broadly or as specifically as you like, if you if you don't mind. Well, you know, I observed that there's this paradigm, and I guess Donald Trump is the perfect example of it, where on one hand you have him constantly talking about how oppressed he is, that there's a witch hunt, and it's unfair, and it's so sad. But actually, he's the perpetrator, yet he casts himself falsely as the victim. Then on the other side of it, he points at people who are absolutely without power immigrants undocumented people muslims and he situates them as though they are the cause of pain that actually he and the other one percent are actually causing 
So it's this paradigm of creating smoke, smoke screens of blame in which perpetrators cast themselves as innocent victims and project people's anxieties onto other parties that are not the cause of their pain. So that's the central paradigm. And the, the definitions that I use are that abuse is power over. It's when you're in a situation in which you have no control and you're not contributing to the problem. And somebody else has so much power over you that they can control you. And conflict is power struggle. It's when we're in situations that on some level we're contributing to the escalation. doesn't mean it's our fault. It's not about blame. It's about understanding where the problem lies. Now, normally you would think that people would like to uncover that actually they have some power in transforming a situation because then they can act in some way to change it. But we're in a situation culturally where any acknowledgement of participation in creating a problem ultimately becomes blame of that person. And then the person is cast as uh, someone who is ineligible for compassion. The only way that you're eligible for compassion is if you are a pure, clean victim. Right. And this is a false, you know, paradigm. So those are the general parameters, although it gets into a lot of other arenas in which those dynamics are expressed. Sure, right. And you wrote the book before Trump, is that right? I mean, Right. It was published like two weeks or something before the election. That's that's incredible because when I I reread it before this conversation and I was struck by just how much more uh, pertinent and timely this sort of what you're saying really is because uh, as you sort of pointed out, he really – in the Trump era, it, it's been so magnified, and I find this, uh, he really is the biggest victim there is. And what I find it's sort of interesting is that if you, if you listen to people talk, you sort of think about, I think generally people think of victimhood as sort of um, being a, a problem on the left, the social justice side of things. And, and, and I look at things and i certainly now i see him as the biggest perpetrator of what you're talking about um and well look at what's been happening this week i mean one of the classics is that a person who resists an unfair structure gets cast as abusive right and uh he does this all the time this is what he's just done with the four women of color in congress right they are making active progressive positive actions Towards positive change, yet because they are in a resistant position, they get characterized as being on the attack. Because the unfair situation that they're addressing gets falsely characterized as neutral, and this is a classic that people who resist injustice are positioned as negative. So I, I look at a lot of examples. I mean, a classic example is Palestine. Mm-hmm. You know, Palestinians are constantly being falsely characterized as dangerous when actually they are the ones who are endangered. And the Israeli state is constantly positioning itself as threatened when actually they are the perpetrators. So there you have a very classic example. Another example that I give in the book is people with AIDS. Mm -hmm. People with AIDS are constantly positioned as threatening or dangerous when actually they are vulnerable endangered people who needs uh you know solidarity and support so you see that this this structure operates on the state level but it also operates on the intimate level Mm -hmm. we often find that people who tell us the truth about ourselves or about uh the ways that we're contributing to chaos or or that we're escalating problems, they get positioned as being aggressive or assaultive or abusive when actually they're telling us the truth. So, you know, this is, this is, this is where we're at. Yeah. I mean, I just speaking, just to bring it to the personal, I mean, you know, when I do, when I was rereading uh, conflict is not abuse, I was thinking about, it just made me sort of think about how, even in my own life, it really is, it's so, it is so much easier to throw up your hands and say uh, that you were wronged 
because it sort of ends things and it makes you feel better about your participation in the event. So it's sort of, it becomes this, this go-to thing. And I think when it's, when it's everywhere in the culture from the top down, it's even with the president Well, constantly. the reason I think is because we're focused on trying to figure out who's wrong so mm-hmm. that they can be punished. Right. And, you know, punishment doesn't work. I think that that should be obvious. Mm-hmm. But what we should be looking for is what caused the problem. How did this happen? What was the order of events? So that we can understand it and avoid it in the future. And if that, you know, if that was our focus, then we would be encouraging each other to negotiate rather than to punish. Like now we have this false concept of loyalty where if, you, let's say, your friend breaks up with their boyfriend or mm-hmm. something, you're supposed to hate that boyfriend for life. Mm-hmm. That's how you show that you're loyal. Right. You know, we're constantly being asked to hurt people in the name of loyalty and identification. But if instead... If we all agreed that it was beneficial for everyone to negotiate, then real loyalty and real love would mean asking the people that we are identified with to think about their participation right. in creating the problem. Right, and I, th- I look. I, 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 do you? See, there's the, there's this. Uh, I feel like it's so easy now to get lost in the echo chamber of what you're already thinking and i feel like that only sort of pushes people further into their own idea of them being right and and it's almost like this uh validation or confirmation that the way that they're doing it is right and i think not only the echo chamber but you talk about this a little bit too is the modern technology of email or text or anything it allows for this sort of shunning to be so much easier than it really has been in the past. And I think that it sort of uh, becomes this strange habit that I, that I find that people just don't, they don't ever want to talk about the thing once it's over. They want to write the angry email and be done with it. And yeah, then they can well, throw it's their manifested in a lot of different ways. Like, you know, the classic is somebody sends you a lousy email, mm-hmm. and then when you call them to talk about it, they don't take the call. Right. In other words, they initiate a conflict and then they refuse to the participatory, you know, relationship that is required to resolve it. You know, another thing is like blocking people on Facebook. Yeah. You know, if somebody writes something on Facebook that makes you feel anxious, if you actually wait, it will just scroll down. <laughs> so, I, you know, I just invite everyone who's listening to just go to Facebook and unblock everyone you've blocked. Right. So what if they say something you don't like? You know, at the root of this is this idea that it's a kind of supremacy ideology that people think they have the right to never be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But the truth is the only way that we can go through life never being uncomfortable is if other people are suppressed. Because, you know, people are different. Right. And the more equitable and fair our social interactions are, the more uncomfortable we will be. And uncomfortability should be a state that we aspire to instead of something that we try to punish. That's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I, <clears throat> I read a lot about uh, this uh, problem pro- cropping up on campus a lot. And um, you're a professor, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I, I find it interesting that, that the, I mean, when I went to school, I, I don't really remember this being a thing, but I'm reading a lot about this idea of um, we, the idea of being uh, offended by something on like a syllabus and then they, then a student can sort of not participate in the class. Is that really a thing? Because I feel like I hear about that a lot. I don't think it actually goes down that way. Yeah. People want to, you know, some people want to be told what the content is going to be, but there's, there's a, there's a mistake in that because Mm -hmm. you can't control the outside environment right so the idea that you can stop yourself from being exposed to things that make you uncomfortable i think is a mistaken strategy it's not really viable Mm -hmm. so you could force a classroom to not present ideas that would make you uncomfortable but what's going to happen on the way to school right you know it's i think it's better to try to build resilience rather than to than protection Right, right, right. Um, I, I, I wonder, how, just sort of historically, how did we get here from from the turn into seeking yeah. punishment and 
the idea of racing to find a victim and and the abuser or whatever we want well, to call it. Well, you know, yeah. I do have some thoughts about that. You know, like when I was born in 1958 in New York City, if mm-hmm. a woman was raped, she couldn't get a conviction unless she had a witness, right? Her mm-hmm. own testimony was not valid in the courtroom. So in the early 60s, when the feminist movement against violence first emerged, women did not expect justice from the state. I mean, women were not even in the state. Very few women were judges or lawyers or certainly not in government. So when you look at that early movement in the 1960s, which emerged at a time of global liberation movements like anti-colonial movements and black power, gay liberation, and Mm -hmm. these were very radical movements that reimagined the human relationship when we look at that early feminist movement, they were very interested in empowering women and less interested in punishing men because right. they didn't rely on the state. So they created these alternative structures like abortion was illegal. People built uh, illegal abortion networks. If you were raped, you could call a rape crisis hotline and somebody who had been raped would answer the phone. Right. There was a trend towards self-defense classes. They were not inv- asking the state to intervene. And in the 70s, there was a program called CETA, where the government paid the uh, salaries of the staffs of these kinds of grassroots organizations. But when Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980, and that's sort of D-Day for the problems that we're having now, Mm -hmm. one of the very first things he did was eliminate CETA. Mm -hmm. So all of these grassroots groups lost their funding. And then you start to watch in the 80s as the government starts to absorb these roles. So the government takes on the job of, quote, ending violence. Right. But there's a there's a problem in meaning because the U.S. government is one of the greatest sources of violence in the world. Right. So for us, for the, our government to be in charge of ending violence, it doesn't really shake out. And the main way that they came up with is, you know, police enforcement and incarceration. Now, what's interesting is the early feminist movement, when they looked at the causes of male violence, they, they identified racism, poverty, and patriarchy. Mm. But using the police to incarcerate mostly poor people does not address racism, patriarchy, and poverty. Right. So it really bypasses the causes and just goes to the punishment. And, you know, people who are poor are much more vulnerable to state punishment. But interestingly, in the 80s zeitgeist of popular culture, that's when you start to see things like law and order, special Mm -hmm. victims unit, Mm -hmm. things like this, where there's one completely clean victim and there's one totally evil perpetrator. And the answer is the police. Right. So the police are always positioned as, you know, the solution. Right. Now, we know that police officers are the profession in the United States with the highest rate of domestic violence, higher than even NFL players. So in America, the police are the least likely to be able to solve a problem. And we see this with all of the police murders and police violence that are going on today. Yeah. So that's really how we got here to this idea that punishment and invoking the state is the only way to solve problems. And actually, it's the opposite way. Right. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. It's interesting because you sort of touched on something I think about a lot, which is this sort of I don't want to say anti-police sentiment, but it's more of a reality check on what the police are really like, what they're really up to. And then still we have these, I mean, I'm in, I'm a writer and in TV and in movies, it's, it's almost always what you just described. You know, when you talk about Lone Order SVU or any of those shows, it's, it's, it's the opposite of what we're seeing in reality. And that is such a strange juxtaposition now to me that those, Shows are still so popular, and I mean, NCIS, any show like that. There's the good guy, there's the bad guy, and the cops are always the good guy. And yeah, in- I mean, I've taught on Staten Island for 22 years, and I've had a lot of police officers and correctional officers as my students. Mm. You know, and I've had a lot of exposure to them up close. Right. And, you know, they're often the least conceptual students. Mm. When Eric Garner was murdered by Mm. the police on Staten Island, we discussed it in my class. And the students who were related to the police department, their answer was if Eric Garner had done what he was told, he'd be alive today. So they see obedience as the solution to police violence. So clearly they're not really conceptualizing the problem. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I also there's a there's a there's a sort of a tribalist element to that too. I mean, it's like if you know or are close to a 
a police officer, let's say, and you know that that police officer happens to be a good one, you mm-hmm. might just hear it as sort of an attack on that person instead of the wider institution or system. Well, that's, you're very right, and that's our whole loyalty system. Right, yeah. We think that we're loyal if we defend the people we identify with, even when they do things that are very destructive. Yeah, the loyalty thing I find very strange. I mean, just to bring it back to, to Trump now, I mean, you talked about those uh, tweets that he just blasted out. I mean, he's really on one lately with that. I just saw something about, you know, we're not communists in this country and, and all this. And there's this insanely blind loyalty uh, in almost like a 20th century totalitarian way where his... I mean, you, it, generally just the Republican Party now. I mean, even someone like Lindsey Graham is on TV talking about com- communism. And it's just like this strange impossibility to even look at the other side. And that's only getting well, worse to me. Well, are not used to government looking like young brown women, you know, mm-hmm. taking down people like Wilbur Moss, which is right. like the greatest pleasure I've ever had. <laughs> you know, I've never seen anyone in government who represented my point of view before. Right, and, yeah. you know, I'm 60 years old. So to finally have that change start to take place is so exciting, but it's terrifying to them. Right. I, I guess that it, through, just through your perspective then, I mean, seeing that happen while sort of the antithesis of that has has also let's say taken off on the right with trump and all and you know the alt, the alt right let's say whatever you want to call the things going further and further on the right that way it's sort of is it the emergence well, we're changing and they're changing i mean people like um and alexandria ocasio-cortez you know 10 years ago, someone like that would have been on the fringe of the left. Right. Because these very talented, very radical, smart leaders were not allowed to enter into the mainstream of the system. And my whole generation was filled with them, and they were not allowed to participate. Right. You know, and because women have changed so much, this, you know, we've been able to move forward. So the other side is changing. They're becoming more radical, and we're becoming, we're getting some more power. But, you know, nobody knows what's going to happen. Right. It's a very mysterious moment. Do you find that door to be? Because I look at I look at Trump, and I think maybe the only good thing that can come of that is that it's so it's so blatant how shitty he is that I think it makes at least some people just throw up their hands and say, "Well, we can't like we that can't be the way." I mean, do you find that his I guess ultimate shittiness, let's say, just as a broad uh, blanket term has sort of opened up the door for that farther left side to come to come in. I don't know, because there's so much voter repression. Yeah, yeah. Right, gerrymandering, and, you know, it's hard to, it's really hard to know. I mean, the level of corruption is so astounding. I know. You know, that we, you know, that um, it's really hard to know if there's a chance to, you know, regain any kind of stability. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um and I also I, I want to. There's something you say, and it, I find this very fascinating. You talk about how time uh, does not heal all wounds, and all I ever hear is the opposite. I think all anyone ever hears is the opposite. And I'm curious if you could just expand on that a little bit, because I f- I find that to 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 actually ring very true to me. But I it's the fir- it's actually the first time I was ever really f- thought about it that way, um, and I find that really interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a Christian paradigm of Christ on the cross, right? And mm-hmm. the idea is that suffering makes you better. Right. Uh, but it's actually not true. Mm-hmm. You know, suffering really is destabilizing and disorienting. The, and, yeah. um, you know, I just finished the first draft of A History of Act Up New York, The mm-hmm. AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. This book is 800 pages. But anyway, <laughs> you know, it ends um, by looking at that that first AIDS generation and the people who are still alive today and, you know, the kind of loneliness and trauma that they live with and that's really unrecognized. Right. And even though they won and saved each other's lives and changed the world, there's a lot of suffering there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you think, do you find that to be sort of a message from power down or or the other way around? Like, I I feel like I get a little... um, I'm curious as to where that, who that message... Well, I think it's a Christian hierarchical right. position. Right, know? right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
and I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, a little bit more about this idea of um, attacking while while hiding that we sort of hit on hit on earlier. Um, the ability to sort of snipe from afar and then leave it at um, leave it at that. I mean, uh, I, I think wasn't there didn't the uh, didn't Trump's blocking of people on Twitter sort of turn? <laughs> It was a little illegal. Right, yeah. yeah. So that was like a, that was super interesting to me. The idea that it was a suppression of, what was a suppression of free speech? I mean, to to find that. um, Well, shunning is the most destructive thing that anyone can do. Mm. When you have conflict with somebody, the most important thing is to, is to have contact with them. And if you can't work it out, the two of you, then that's the role of community. Community should be intervening or third-party intervention to help people communicate. You know, right now, community intervenes to keep people polarized. It has a negative role. Right, right, right. But, you know, that shunning, refusing to hear the other person's perspective is what uh, entrenches separation and uses difference as a, you know views difference as threat right over yeah. and over again i mean one of the central insights of the book is that both supremacy experience and trauma can produce this desire to shun mm. and and it's for different reasons but it can have the same impact on the other party so if you're raised in a supremacy ideology you're raised that you have the right to never be challenged and therefore difference is assaultive or dangerous or threatening or causes anxiety. So when other people have another way of looking at something that would require you to question yourself, you feel that it's you have the right to not question yourself. And so you see that simple difference as a threat. But when we're traumatized, sometimes it's so hard to just keep it together Mm. that the idea that somebody else has a different way of looking at something where you would have to question yourself is so threatening that people shun. Right. And, and again, position difference as a threat. And even though these come from two very different places, for the person who's on the receiving end of this projection, mm. it's very, very threatening. It can be life-threatening, but right. it certainly can be upsetting. Right, yeah. Um, I'm curious as to, I mean, when I, re- when I read your work, and particularly Conflict is Not Abuse, I, I find it to be compassionate and, and sort of like a plea um, uh, to figure things out, I'm, I'm curious if there was any sort of back, I don't I don't know if backlash is the right word, but I, I feel like because it's so openly talking about how we all sort of shoulders not necessarily blame, but some sort of power ability to uh, make these amends that you're talking about. Was there any kind of I well? Don't know. Interestingly, there's a huge group of people who've never actually read the book. Mm. Uh, there was a there was an attack on the book that came out before it was even at the printer, <laughs> I love and that. that thing was reposted <laughs> like over a thousand times, and it made the false claim that I was telling people to call the police when actually the whole book is about trying to find a way out of involving the state. Right? Yeah, no, so it was an, literally the opposite of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, but it actually illustrates exactly what my book is about. That because people feel anxiety that they're going to have to question themselves, they project all of these false analyses yeah. onto other people. So in, a, in that way, I think my book was proven correct. Right, yeah. There have been people who've actually read it and who have some areas that they agree with and other areas that they disagree with. And they're able to accurately state what my idea is Mm. and then explain clearly why they disagree. You know, that does exist, and that's been very helpful. But some people are so panicked when they read it. They feel so implicated, Mm. and they don't want to question themselves that they misstate what my argument is in order to take it down. And that's happened a couple of times as well. Yeah, and that is kind of proving a, a lot of what, what's in the book in the first place. That I guess what what is that knee jerk thing? I mean, if somebody hasn't r- even read it, what, why where would that even come from? Like, what what would be the well? Point? It's that famous trigger, you know. It's like, and I even talk about this in the book itself. That a trigger is when we have unresolved pain from the past, mm-hmm. but we blame it on the present. Mm. So something happened with our parents when we were young that never got dealt with. So we tell our 
partner that they are the worst person in the world and what they're doing to us is the worst thing anyone's ever done. Right. Because it's unresolved pain. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, and so that's what the trigger is. So there's, when there's an anxiety, it's like when the police, when the white police kill a black person mm-hmm. and the person was like reading a book in their car. Mm. But the policeman projected that the person was aiming a gun at them. Right, right. It's because their racism, mm-hmm. their own racism produces an anxiety. Right. And they act on that anxiety and uh, people die. Yeah. And so, you know, it's this type of, of project. That's why we need other people to intervene and say to us, listen, you know, I'm your friend and you need to take it down. How can I help you communicate with this person? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's such a race to get to the end of the thing too i mean when we talk about resolving things i think you talk a lot about generally putting things in the hands of the state i think of just bringing things people constantly having this knee-jerk reaction to bring things to uh, a position of, of authority to sort of have some resolution that falls on their side well, they want someone to be punished so that they don't have to think about themselves like in my book, I talk about this very fascinating figure, Edith Weigert, who was a psychiatrist in, right as the Nazis were coming to power in Berlin. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the patients that she was seeing in her office during that period and what they were talking about. And some people were coming and saying, oh, my God, I got to get into the Nazi party. How do I do that? Others are saying, I got to get out of here. Right. How do I get out of here? Others are saying, how do we assassinate Hitler? You know, based on their characters, they were coming up with different strategies for Mm -hmm. surviving the movement and she became a refugee in the united states eventually and she talks about how she wishes she could have treated fascists to help them understand that you can separate anxiety from action that just because you feel an anxiety that makes you hate jews or hate black people or whatever Mm -hmm. there's a way to separate that from the need to destroy And that separation is important also in interpersonal relationships. Like just because you have unresolved issues from the past and the person you're talking to, it it triggers those feelings. doesn't mean you have to destroy that relationship. It's actually a place to work it through. Right. I I think of, I mean, that makes total sense to me and I love that. I think that people, I think the very idea now, I mean, I think people are so against even opening up any kind of dialogue or any kind of remote understanding about these i mean if you want to bring up nazis anybody that's on the very uh, obviously an openly hateful side it's it's like the idea is to again totally shun and to me that looks like it might just make it worse and create a bigger problem i mean i have no real of course it escalates right yeah shunning is an act of escalation Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think that it makes people who are more liable to f- fall into some sort of hateful ideology to f- fall into that because it makes it seem like there might be no place for them to be open or honest about their feelings. I mean, you talk about anxieties. I think some people, I think some people are racist, sexist, whatever they are, without even realizing it, and they're never going to realize it if they're if they know they can't even acknowledge it and that sounds like a strange thing to do i think on both sides because because people who you know they're afraid to get ostracized by people who are not hateful about these certain things but then the well, other I side mean, go, they don't go get back labeled. To Palestine. Yeah. yeah yeah you know the palestinian situation i mean americans do not hear from palestinians yeah, yeah our media yeah. does not represent them they're not on television we don't know who they are we don't hear their experience yeah so how can anyone have a, a fair sense of you know what that situation is even if many israelis don't have personal relationships with palestinians so by shunning them officially you know you create them as these like you know monstrous others when actually they're highly endangered people who right. need support Right. Uh, you talk a little bit about that. Um, I believe it was a study where the the idea that even having thoughts about communicating with the other, the, cap- yes. with the capital O, sort of opens you up a, a bit. Just I- imagining talking to the hated other makes people softer. That you know, it's interesting because I also I also cite two studies, and the thing about studies are, you know, they don't prove anything. They're kind of like poetry, right? They can uh-huh. just open your mind a little bit. Right, but right, right. I cite two studies about the difference between guilt and shame, mm-hmm. and I find that people who come to conflict from a place of guilt want reconciliation. 
you know, they want people to talk about what happened and to take responsibility. But people who come from a place of shame, they want to destroy the other party because they can't tolerate self-criticism. Yeah. um, You know, I think people actually, I find that fascinating. I think people actually get the two of those guilt and shame sort of they conflate them a bit and they're very different and i think people generally think of them as there's they're they're almost the same thing can you do like what what to you is the definition of one and then the other well shame means that it's impossible to look at your own behavior Mm. because your essential being is questioned in your own mind you know obviously you've had some kind of dehumanized dehumanizing experience earlier in life and guilt means that you recognize that you've participated in something. And that gives you the ability to try to make it right. Right. One is sort of recognize, shame is sort of recognizing something about yourself that you don't want to face. And guilt is you can't more. Face. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, and then when you have other people, partners or family members or even, you know, other people in your race or religion who are telling you that that's right. Mm-hmm. then you'll never move forward because staying in a place of dishonesty is essential to the, your relationship with these other people. It's a negative bond. Right, yeah. But when the people around you are, are encouraging you to negotiate and supporting you in being self-critical, that's when things can move forward. Just going back to the Palestine-Israel um, thing again, uh, there's a lot of, I mean, you bring up the, the four uh, congresswomen uh, that Trump has sort of singled out and made... Mm-hmm. Um, his attacks on i i think of the 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 whole thing where they the, he he positions them as anti anti-semitic right I, yes that's manipulation i find that to be such a stretch that i, I actually when i read that I, usually okay usually he's he's so he's crazy but to a degree where i understand the connection he's making that one i actually get lost about um, well, it's a propaganda ploy. Right. I mean, it's being used all over the world. You know, but that's exactly what we're talking about. So yeah. you have the occupation, which is unjust, in which one people are dominating and controlling another. Then you have the people who are being dominated trying to regain some sort of equal footing, which mm-hmm. is, in other words, to seek justice. Mm-hmm. And that's, that gets falsely positioned as abuse. Right. But it's not. It's justified resistance. Right, it's almost, you know, like, and we need to understand that. It's almost like just starting a conversation about a thing. Um, I mean, seven Jewish human rights groups in Israel have condemned this false equivocation between anti-Semitism and um, you know being for Palestinian rights. Right. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm on the advisory board of Jewish Voice for Peace, which has fifteen thousand members in the United States, and we support Palestinian rights. What you're seeing in America is that the the increasingly the constituency that is most supportive of the current apartheid system in Israel mm-hmm. are Christian Zionists. Yes, yeah. Right wing Christians with apocalyptic views mm-hmm. about Israel. And they're represented by people like Mike Pence. Right. Yeah. I I find I mean when I just yes, I, I the religious the I think that that is sort of hidden in, in all of this. It's not spoken of uh, as much, but I find that to be definitely at the root, right? I mean, like, that's, it's like a religious thing, that sort of hard stance um, scapegoating seems to be so rooted in, in um, Christianity and Christian belief. Well, you know, or any kind of dominant theory of religion, yeah, it's often related, yes. Yeah. Certainly um, women don't do well in religious states. Right. Yeah. That's definitely. I mean, we see the whole anti abortion campaign is certainly it's only religious. Yeah. In fact, globally the only societies that are homophobic are religious societies. There right. was a time when there were, you know, secular right wing movements that were anti gay, but that's hardly exists now. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um Switching gears a little bit, uh, I wanted to talk about um, your book, Stage Struck, and your experience okay. <laughs> with that. As an artist uh, myself, that just uh, I find that to be a particularly um, outrageous and uh, just a, a crazy story. Not 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 only um, what happened with um, 
your book, but also um, just how you open it up into the broader conversation about um, how things are commodified and turned into these sort of vanilla stale things. So, I mean, not that you need to tell the entire story, but if you could... um, Well, in 1990, I published a novel about AIDS. It's, It's the first novel that includes AIDS activism. And first of all, interestingly, the fictional villain in that novel was based on Donald Trump. Oh, wow. In 1990. That's incredible. Because, you know, New Yorkers have always known how horrible he is. <laughs> right. But anyway. Prescient, yeah. So then in 1995, this musical called Rent opened. Mm-hmm. And the author, Jonathan Larson, died on opening night at a very young age. Now, in, in that period when young men died, people assumed they died of AIDS. Mm-hmm. And the play had a lot of AIDS and gay content. So it was assumed that he was gay and died of AIDS, but actually he was straight and he had an aortic aneurysm. Right. Anyway, quite a bit of the content of, of Rent was came from a novel of mine called People in Trouble. In fact, half of Rent comes from La Boheme and the other half comes from People in Trouble. And many people have documented that they talked to him about it, that they brought the book into the rehearsal room, that he, you know, I mean, it's everyone knows that he used that material. So what's interesting, I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, so the first question people are going to ask is, you know, do I, am I owed a section of the billion dollars <laughs> that was, and the answer is no, because even though both sides agree that he used my character's themes, setting plots and ideas, he did not use my words. Mm. And only actual words are copyrightable. And this is to protect satire. Mm. But so if he had lived, he probably would have negotiated something with me. But larger than that is the issue of how he's twisted the representation. So for those of you who've seen Rent, you know, Mm -hmm. the straight people with AIDS live and the gay people with AIDS die. Right. And there's a lesbian relationship, but they're bickering all the time, right? They never help each other. It's the straight people that have the real relationships. And the landlord who's creating gentrification is black. Mm. And the people who are being victimized by gentrification are white. I mean, it's like everything is reversed. You know, right. so he took something really radical and he turned it into something dominant culture. Right. And, you know, this is probably why one of the reasons why it was so successful. Of course, if he had lived, it probably would never have you know, gotten right. the notoriety that it uh, did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so states, yeah. Uh, I, I was, I, as my experience, I mean, I saw that, I don't know how young I was. I was very, very young when I saw that. And I distinctly remember part of the narrative around Rent being that the, 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 the man who wrote it died of AIDS the night before it opened. I totally right. remember being told that. And I thought mm-hmm. that until I mm-hmm. learned otherwise. And this, but that was like, 20 years later, you know, um, right. and, and I didn't know, uh, anything about any of the contents of, of stage rock. And I find the idea that it was two things. I guess that the fact that I had no idea about Larson himself and the real reason, the real way he died. And also the fact that, you know, he had lifted obviously so much from you, Mm-hmm. And as well as the as the idea that you're not looking for money, I find that all of those things sort of. Well, swirling. I looked, you know, right, but right, right. I, I saw the situation. I mean, I'm not a saint, <laughs> but you know, sure. the reason he felt comfortable, and I think this is worth examining. At that time, queer work was considered very, very marginal. It was right. considered very subcultural, even though the book was published by Dutton, which is a corporate publisher. Mm. But people, you know, straight white people were constantly stealing from queer people and people of color. Right. So, for example, at the same era, Madonna had the song called Vogue mm-hmm. that came from the black gay art form of voguing. Oh. You know, so there was this constant shopping and farming in the queer world. And that's what he did. It never occurred to him that you know, he would be asked to be accountable. Right. However, I think that if he had lived, he would have been, because apparently he was a nice guy. But Right, right, right. Yeah. But anyway, in Stage Struck, I look at it in a larger way. Right. Because that period of time is when, 
you know, uh, the AIDS crisis had been underway for quite some time now, and that created a new visibility for gay people. And this is when corporations started to see gay people as potential niche markets and started to advertise in the gay press and started to try to sell things. And this is the time when the gay movement got transformed into a market. Right. And that's really what I'm talking about in this book. It's called uh, Theater AIDS Stage Struck, Theater AIDS and the Marketing of Gay America. Right, right, right. So that came out, I think, in 95. I'm not sure what year, but... It was about 10 years, 10 to 15 years ahead of its time. Right, yeah. In identifying that exact structure. Yeah, certainly. I'm- so like this year with World Pride in New York, you know, you'll see articles saying, hey, Pride is getting commodified. Well, folks, I mentioned that like 25 years ago. <laughs> right. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, what happens. It's yeah, definitely it true. It takes a long time. Right, yeah. Um, I, I What really struck me, I mean, and you make it about specifically um, mo- uh, commodification of gay America, and I think particularly m- male gay culture is sort of found to be targeted most. Is that right? I mean, in your to your eye, it's well, almost- I mean, white gay men have the highest. Okay, so men earn more than women. White men earn more than white women, right? Or than all women. So a household that is two white male salaries. Or a group of friends that are all white male salaries or a community that's all white male salaries are going to have a lot more discretionary income than anyone else. Right. Whoever partners with a white man in America has an economic advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I also I, – there's something that you that you write about in that specifically about your experience of um, being at the – is it a writer retreat? Uh uh, in the eighties and then coming back again when you were writing a chapter from this, from the book Mm -hmm. and you talk about the difference between, um, the period, uh, the earlier period and the later period. And that really resonated with me just this, you know, if you part of gentrification is the one part of it is the professionalization of the arts. Right. So that, you know, when I first started, an artist was a person who made art. Right. And each artist's art was understood to be an expression of an individual voice. Mm-hmm. And each artist would eclectically accrue influences. But then, you know, as gentrification came in, we get all these MFA programs and mm-hmm. this professionalization. And that's a filter system. It filters by class, by race, and it filters by aesthetics. And the people who come through those programs, uh, you know, it's in a sense counterindicated to art making. Yeah. Because if you're all reading the same books, then you're not developing eclectic influences. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I, I found that to be to line up exactly with with my experience. I mean, the business of the arts it sort of funnels things out of the same tiny hole, and it it sort of the more money that is required to get into certain programs or whatever, the the more of an of this sort of arbitrary elite is created and and it makes everything shittier and less original and everything sort of feels the same and corporate and ugly in the same way. And yeah, I you get branded. Right, yeah. By what school you went to. Right. That true, becomes yeah. this that's supposed to mean your level of quality. It's crazy. But you know, we confuse familiarity with quality all the time so things that are the most familiar Mm -hmm. and most resemble the status quo are considered good and the things that are most original and daring which are actually the best are positioned as wrong because they're unfamiliar god that's interesting say that again familiarity say that again i love that oh familiarity and quality are confused yeah that is so fucking true yeah i mean i i I mean, as a as a film writer and director, I look at I look at movies that are popular now, and I don't need to go on a rant about it. But I look at this shit that is the most successful, and these it's easiest to focus on the superhero movie sort of structure, and it's so fucking depressing because every single one of them is literally the same movie, and it's all sort of this hearkening back to when people were children and it's it's like this infantilization of our 
I don't even know, our adult mind, it's very strange to me that everyone agrees that these pieces of shit are good just because the market is flooded with them. Well, it's, it's familiar in that it's based on sort of the John Wayne model mm-hmm. of the heroic individual. Yeah. And this is the American myth because nothing is ever accomplished by an individual. Right. You know, in America, everything good that's happened has happened through coalitions. Yeah. You know, yet we maintain this false myth. Yeah, why Why is that? What perpetuates that? The, I mean, what, what... Well, it keeps the power in the same hands, doesn't it? Right, 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 yeah. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, I guess, lastly, just more broadly, the way... The way it... The way... I mean, I think that a common refrain among artists is that commerce is the enemy of art. And I, and I, and I think a lot of young artists that I know, myself included, we sort of struggle with where to even put that and how to deal with it, I suppose. Well, I mean, I think of it more, the problem is repetition. Mm. Because for me, like, entertainment is telling people what they already know. Because mm. there's a comfort in that. Mm-hmm. But art expands how we understand what we know. And, that's, and that gets us back to our original discussion about the necessity of being uncomfortable. Right. If we're going to move forward. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's, I, I. It's just, it's just too. It's so easy to be comfortable now, and I think people are getting spoiled. For some people, some people are extremely uncomfortable. Right, and that gap is only growing. And I think the people that are able to exist in some sort of comfort uh, echo chamber, whatever you want to call it, are just becoming less and less receptive to that even being true. And less and less receptive to even other ideas about it. Right, because we now have a president who apparently, who not only incarcerates children, but is apparently involved with people who rape children. Yes, yeah. You that, know, so yeah. It's, it's, that's how corrupt we are. Yeah, my God, the, the fucking Jeffrey Epstein thing is mind-blowing. I can't even look at that shit Well, hopefully anymore. the reason they're going after him is to get Trump. I mean... I, I have to believe that that's why they're doing this at this point. There must be something there. Yeah. I, I, so let's hope. Let's hope so. I, 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 are you familiar with this? Um, I talk about this all the time. I'm like obsessed with this QAnon community. Are you familiar with these people? The, the, pe- the what? The QAnon. Um, the people no. who, this conspiracy theory that Donald Trump is saving the world uh, against the deep state. And um, Part of it is no. everything that gets in the way of that, like the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing. There's a whole plot. There's whole. It's everything. Always was is was by design, and it's this theory that Trump has been planning this thing from like the late '90s, and uh, it just speaks to the absurdity and the ability to only really now you. It's just so easy to only read and look at what you want well, we to do look know at. that voter suppression has been planned for right. decades right i mean that whole gerrymandering case over right? the supreme court and right. all of that yeah right 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 and that just happened right i mean that case was just decided and nothing's going to change of course right wow that's very very depressing um all right yeah well i mean i really appreciate your time sarah this has been really cool i'm a big fan of thanks yours. so much for preparing i appreciate absolutely that. yeah I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours and um i will um definitely continue following you um and yeah thanks so much for your time i know you're busy but i really really appreciate it okay take care thanks sir bye, bye. <laughs>